This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Welcome to this, the 61st episode of the Best Friends Podcast. It's April the 29th, and one of the great joys for me that comes with the privilege of hosting this podcast is the ability I have to spend time talking to people, the transformative leaders doing incredible things, saving lives. I'm able to get to know them, who they are, try to understand what we can all learn from them, and share those conversations with you. And I absolutely count Ed Jameson in that group of transformative leaders in the field. My name is John Dunn, and I just think the world of Ed, and we always have great conversations. We talked about a lot of different things, and it ended up being almost two hours. So we decided this is probably better as a two-part episode, but we start by getting to know more about Ed, his background in Ohio, Garfield Heights, a suburb of Cleveland, and then chief animal control officer in Cleveland, and then running Dallas Animal Services, where he helped lead that community's ambitious goal to get to know Kill, and they achieved that goal, by the way. He's the vice president of the board of directors for the National Animal Care and Control Association, president of Texas Unites for Animals, board member for Shelter Animals Count. So yeah, he's just a little bit busy. So I'm grateful to have had the time with him, and I'm excited to share that conversation with you. Now, did you know you can email us here at the Best Friends Podcast? I love getting your emails. You can send them to podcast at bestfriends.org. Tell me what you're doing to save lives. I mean, you might just end up as a guest on this podcast, but we only know about you and the work of your organization if you tell us. So what are you doing? Podcast at bestfriends.org. Maybe it's just pictures of your pets. Always welcomed, especially cats. Podcast at bestfriends.org. And now part one of my conversation with Ed Jameson. A lot of questions for you, Ed. So uh, I truly appreciate you taking the time to chat. You know, I know, uh, you know, the big news is that you made this huge career shift. You've left the municipal sheltering world, taking on the role leading the nonprofit Operation Kindness. Of course, I want to talk about that. But I have to ask, people can't see this, obviously, but we're chatting on video, and I can see behind you, and that definitely does not look like the city of Dallas. I'm in country land south of Dallas. I know uh, it's bad to assume, but knowing you were in Dallas and Cleveland before that, I guess I just had you pegged as a city boy, but looks like you got quite the setup. Yeah, I got cows and donkeys, and we're building a great big huge super shed back in this open area. We're getting goats. My donkeys are, or my cows are way in the back right now. It's 10 acres, so by Texas standards, it's not that big. But for me, it's great. I can keep adding animals. We have barn cats all over the freaking place, you know, un- unadoptable cats from DAS. Oh, 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 so that was a big key to the success you had at Dallas Animal Services then. Only when you keep it under 5,000, it's legit. No, there, there's like Four total that couldn't go on TNR for whatever reason, but certainly didn't deserve to die and could be all right if they had a caretaker in a barn. So there's two that are here all the time, and there's like two or three that they'll be gone for two months, and then our trail camera will show them eating food one night. So they're, they're somewhere around Palmer, Texas, doing, doing whatever they do, and they come back when they need to. So You're from Akron, Ohio. I know you were in the Army. i just interested to know how you got into 
this crazy business? Yeah, it was, you know, grew up west side of Akron. My adult life brought me to Cleveland, which, you know, Akron and Cleveland are real, really close. When I went to work for the suburb in, in outside of Cleveland, it's a service department, like, you know, always like fixing things and making people happy. And I just ended up kind of by pure luck. They were just looking to train people for uh, animal control. I liked animals just fine. Always had dogs and cats um, my whole life. And uh, real quick after training, it was like, yeah, I like doing this. So that was just kind of a one-man shop. A couple people trained for weekends and nights and uh, kind of just stumbled on it. It wasn't like I went to school for, you know, animal services or animal welfare. I'm kind of right place at right time. And I like helping people. Helping animals was like a whole you know, whole bonus, like, man, you get a double whammy here. So the military thing happened before that. Well, starting Garfield Heights, February of 2001, and then September 11th happened, 01. And that that's what spurred the Army thing. Went to a recruiter the day after September 11th, and uh, we got deployed as soon as I got done with my training. So best and worst, worst time of my life, all wrapped in one that time. I loved the military life. That very influential part of my life and a lot of my the structure that I have now um, and how I run my agencies has to do with chain of command and information has to be able to flow from the top to the bottom and from the bottom to the top. And in the animal world, that's usually the biggest problem is communication. When you can communicate with your people, you can usually save a bunch of animals if you're being smart about it. That's no joke, Ed. So you spent time in Iraq then? We got mobilized in January of 03. And I think the first bomb dropped on March 19th, 03, because that was my birthday. And then we hit Kuwait April 11th, I want to say it was, something like that, is when we landed in Kuwait and it just kept driving north and it took over that base and I did convoy support. You know, something breaks, fix it, tow it, or blow it up. You know, well, you got 10 minutes to figure out one of those three things to do. And that was just scary. We broke down in downtown Baghdad as a trail vehicle. We were reserved, so our radio sucked. The rest of the convoy just kept on driving, didn't even know we were broke behind them. And it's like, man, we, we had better figure out how to get this deuce and a half rolling again here because... You know, as people are looking and saying, oh, they seem like they're in trouble there. To be so scared, but also have your buddies that you're willing to do anything with. And at one point, we're just like, we're not going to make it out of here. So let's stop complaining about it. And let's just do our job and try to take care of each other until they blow us up. Because they fire mortars in at nighttime. The simple pleasures. So you have your little PlayStation that you're playing at night, sitting on your duffel bag with your little TV that's about four inches big, playing Tiger Woods. And when you're more mad that they kick the generator out with the mortar... And it messed up your Tiger Woods game because you didn't get to save it. <laughs> and, you know, um, that th- those were the things that would make us mad. That, man, don't don't kick us off till we can save our game uh, status before. So, but crazy. So the military was influential for you, you said. And, and you apply what you learned in the military to the way you run your organizations now. I mean, what does that mean? Is it 10-mile runs at 5 a.m. with Ed? I mean, what does that mean exactly? It, it's for me, it's really the, the structure. And yes, we're in an emotional business and emotions certainly have a place, but you still have to have a plan. You have to do things strategically. And again, I've done one. I've been fortunate that I've been able to get good people around me that I trust. Things I hated about the army. I use a lot, too. I hated when a superior would throw a subordinate under the bus because there was somebody more superior to them coming. Inspection time. There's a general on campus. If we have to do something different because some bigwigs in, we're probably not doing it right from the beginning. So just had this yesterday. My my new board president, she's terrific. I was talking with one of my directors and I just said, Hey, just FYI, you know, Mary's gonna be in the building. So, you know, you'll you know, you'll see her, everybody's mask up now. So just so you can 
And she's like, oh, what do you want us to do? Said, no, you don't need to do anything different. I'm, I'm proud of what you guys are doing now. So, no, don't don't change a thing. If you have to change what you're doing because somebody's going to be watching, you're probably not doing doing the right thing to begin with. Trusting your people is just huge. It's one thing when you're a one-man show in Garfield Heights, but then you go to Cleveland, which is a big city, particularly by Ohio standards, the big, biggest uh, shelter, uh, city-run shelter in the state of Ohio. And then you go to Dallas, which there's just not a whole lot bigger than that. You got to trust your people and you have to set up the chain has to be proper. And it, it, I've had a lot of success with that, that when there's a complaint, it's got to go to the right level and let it work its way up. I'm sure if that next level didn't get you your answer, then you go up, you know, you go up. That structure to me is really, really good for a guy who's pretty loose and just talking and we can talk about whatever. I like to have my shop set up in order. This person's in charge of this and they have this many people and they report to them. And none of that is the, the discipline dictator type part of it, but it's for the structure so that we can make sound decisions. You rely on your army training. When stuff hits the fan, rely on your training. When we broke down at that roundabout in downtown uh, Baghdad, it's like, you get out and pull security to the east, you pull security to the west, I'm going to jump under the hood. And Larry, you get up on top of the gun just in case we have to, you know, really let things fly. And, you know, that's what the training said to do. And then, boom, the truck was flooded. I was able to get it and get it pumped out of there and it fired up, get back on and go. And that's what you have to have with how fast things happen in animal shelters and in the animal world. You've got to be able to rely on some training to make some sound decisions. How many employees did you have at Dallas Animal Services? 220. That's huge. Two, 220. I mean, um, inspired by the military or not, I mean, when you start getting to, to that size of an organization, you have to have structure uh, if for no other reason that you don't have people like me running wild. Uh, well, tell me about Garfield Heights, suburb of Cleveland, uh, not just a long way from Dallas, but a long way from 220 employees I, you said you were a one-man shop. Yeah, for the most part, it was one person and a couple other people trained. Rarely, unless there was some type of a seizure or hoarding case or something like that, then, hey, we got to pull those other people off their service department duties to come help with this. So I learned a lot of organizational skills in that setup because I, I was the structure. I, I was the chain of how. So how do you get phone calls in the morning? How do you get your routes on what you're going to you know, go and check during the day. How are you going to get dogs over to the county shelter? This is the first time I ever had a computer, a laptop computer was, man, and I Microsoft Excel was like God's gift to everything to me because I, I could put some order. I was doing everything on paper and it allowed my brain to put things in order. And I and I like that because when you're a one-man show, you're the only person who mess your day up. When you're relying on a crew and everything, you're only as good as the person to your right and your left. So I, I like that structure. That was uh, 2001 till 2014. And so, I mean, when I started, I was doing, I was on the tree crew because I had this construction and landscape background. So trimming trees, cutting down city trees, doing the baseball fields. Um, I was doing that. And it just was very monotonous throughout the day. So, I mean, I jumped at the chance on the, the animal side. And it was after I got back from Iraq. I think I got trained in 04, early 05 is when I started training on animal control. And I think it became the full-time warden towards the end of 05 or beginning of 06. So you start in a community that, hey, you're it. You don't have, I mean, you're not walking into a community that has life-saving programs in place and organization, staff, uh, full of program knowledge. So, I mean, what were you doing? I mean, what was it like in, in Garfield Heights back then? There, there was a bunch of wildlife. It drove me nuts. We did a bunch of wildlife. and it catch and kill wildlife, you know, and so that 
didn't know anything different. You're just trained from by the guy before. It's like, man, there almost has to be a better way. But we were really successful with cats. There were no options for cats before. So that's when I first started working with rescue groups with, with cats and finding options for for the cats that would come into our care. And then to me, dogs were easy. It, the, the, the equation on dogs was very, very easy. People want them, you know. <laughs> um, you got to highlight them. You got to showcase them. And it was, it was really... Seeing the drama, I had, I didn't know the whole animal world yet, but starting to see the bigger picture, I was like, why are people having so much problems with this? And luckily, I had a little vet contract that was enough for this animal sick. Let me run them up the street here to family pet care, and they were always great. Um, so I was like, all right, if you can get them fixed up, they're gonna be they're gonna be a good pet. So there was no putting down of dogs, and so that was like a cool feeling that I always found positive outcomes. And we had the county shelter, which very good in Cuyahoga County that. If I just couldn't get them claimed or I was full, I only had like six dog runs there. Then they go to the county and they were great. I could follow up and I'd always watch the journey of those dogs. So that was cool. They're the ones who actually got me to apply for the Cleveland job. They're like, hey, John Baird, great guy. He's been there forever and a day. Lots of just history with the Cleveland Kennel. And again, not because of John. He's a great guy. That building is horrible. Was horrible. They got a new one now dungeon of a building and i'm like i'm not touching that place are you kidding me i got a good in garfield heights everybody likes me we got a great program here but i decided sure let's throw my name in the hat and it's always that feeling when they're like we're going to extend this posting one more time i'm like they don't want me i must be i think i'm the only person who applied and you still don't want me (laughs) so um they extended it once or twice i was like all right this isn't going to be and then I got a call from the public safety director and said, yeah, you're my guy who I'm picking. And I never asked enough to say, was I the only person you could get to apply for this or not? But that was the first step into kind of, there was a lot bigger world into this animal world than I, that I had realized. I know a little bit about Cleveland. My brother-in-law is from there. So uh, we visited and for people listening who don't know much about the city, I guarantee their immediate thought of Cleveland is probably going to be like Drew Carey. Uh, and then, and then Rust Belt, you know, economically depressed. River catching on fire. Right, right, river on fire. You know, and I think things are dramatically better today for Cleveland. But, but when you took on that role, what was happening there? Yeah, and I didn't really know what I was getting into. I knew a couple of the officers just because my, my dealings in Garfield Heights and, and whatnot. But they, they were good people, you know, and people know what they know. And so it was very animal control. There was a very... Very enthusiastic, small but mighty group of volunteers there. And they were excited that I was coming in, but I also saw that what was happening wasn't going to work, that we were going to have to change and put some structure in for things to work. And that, that is always difficult. Um, again, they are great people. They went through their phase of hating me and then liking me, <laughs> especially towards the end when they really saw what, what got done. But these things... There was no structure on how volunteers could move through, which dogs were getting attention, which weren't. Again, that wasn't really anybody's fault. There's no resources there. I think I had 16 employees or 17 employees. I mean, it, it was low when I started at Cleveland. It almost doubled by the time I left, which was just in a little over three years, three and a half years. But we had to restructure the volunteer program because I didn't have any staff. And I, I needed them. So that was kind of telling them, I care about the same stuff you guys do but you got to give me the key back to the building. You can't come in whenever you want. You know, we need to have some structure here. Um, and so that was rough, but the ones who stuck with me saw that, okay, he's got a plan for, for this and it is actually going to get more animals out. But there were some really, really tough times in Cleveland. Again, there, there isn't any money. There, there just isn't, there, there's just not. The mayor was super happy. Um, I just was unpacking my boxes at my new place today and a bunch of Cleveland pictures right, with the mayor, 
chief of police. I'm like, man, really good people. They're hardworking people. They just, there's just not, there's certainly not anything extra to give the animal control. That's, that's, that's for sure. But I feel that we, we've done them proud and that crew that's still there has just kept that on. We created city dog. We made a program that people were proud of, even though that building is horrible and it's a depressing building. We made it the cool place to go and adopt a big, fat, awesome blockheaded city dog. Um, it was fun for people to go to that horrible building. They have now moved into the new building, which so just the environment is much better. But it's the programs and the people that run an organization. The building is just a physical structure that you're doing your job right. That's just four walls. I've lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan for, it was 10 years, a few weeks ago, actually. Uh, and I think a similar Midwest story in some ways to Cleveland, the furniture industry here, you know, shut down and, and the, the economic struggles that came with that. And that's certainly, you can apply it to so many communities uh, in this region. But, you know, what stands out to me living here is there's uh, a pride that exists in these communities. It's almost like the jokes and the impression people have of of the communities in the Midwest. I don't know. You hear dumb stuff like "Don't go to Detroit unless you want to get shot." Uh, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous. But it's I think put a chip on the shoulder of folks in these places. It, it's almost like a fuel for people to show the rest of the world that we're not what you think we are. And while committed volunteers certainly not unique to the Midwest, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, in the slightest, when you say you had just really deep, committed support like that. Yeah, well, you're ap absolutely right. And um, I wish I had it. Again, I have all this stuff in the box I've been unpacking at my at my new place. But very police-like setup. Worked for public safety. But, like, I changed the logo. I changed the name to Cleveland Animal Care and Control. The City Dogs was one component. But the just the, the organizational patch, you know, in Animal Control, your patch. Just like the Army. It's a very, very big deal you're representing but I changed that up. The Cleveland skyline had to be in it. I'm like, look, I'm not an artist. I'm really horrible at that stuff, but my brain has really good ideas inside of it. So I'm going to tell you, Mr. Designer, what I'm thinking. You come up with something, but it has to have the Cleveland skyline in it because everybody from here is going to know that's the Cleveland skyline. And so they designed that departmental divisional patch with the Cleveland skyline and then the bridge going over it. Really, really cool. And that alone, to your point, energized a bunch of people. They're like, this is Cleveland. So then when the City Dogs program came after that, the same skyline's got to be in that and then figure out how I get one of our awesome dogs into this logo. And it all really played off itself really good. And it one of Best Friends owns. I don't know. Did you know Timmy Sullivan? Absolutely. A board member of uh, Best Friends for a time. Yep. Timmy, when she came to the shelter, she actually brought Gregory uh, Castle um, down very early in my Cleveland days. And it's one of the reasons that I have always respected Best Friends. Timmy's like, I'm bringing, uh, is it all right if I bring Gregory Castle by? And I knew who he was. I'm like, oh, crap. This building's horrible. I wonder how big the mice are going to be today that go scurrying by him when he walks in the door. Just nothing but nice. And he's just like, Ed, anything that you need, you know, let me know. It wasn't judgmental. It wasn't, <laughs> this building sucks and I'm going to call some, you know, somebody to investigate you. It was really supportive. But Timmy helped on a lot of these um to be the brainchild of some of this stuff and pushed me. I wanted to be progressive, but didn't, didn't know. I just didn't know enough as to what we could do. So fee waived adoptions. Again, the idea of branding something, rebranding something came from Timmy Sullivan. And to be able to have somebody that, I'm like, all right, I hear what you're saying, Timmy. You got to help talk me to, to get here. I'll, I'll try anything once. As long as nobody's going to die from it, let's give it a shot. And if, if it sucks, then we'll just stop doing it. 
my advice to anybody is find those people that at least they might not agree with everything. And even if they're judging you, you're not going to know they're judging, you know, they're going to give you the benefit of the doubt to try stuff. And when you can find those people, it's amazing how fast those building blocks just start to pile up. And all of a sudden you have this huge foundation of something. It's a scary industry. There's a lot of people that are swiping at you, sniping at you all the time. But if you can find those people that you trust and say, sure, let's just kick around ideas and let's just try something cool. Taking a dog to an offsite event in the city of Cleveland, I'm like, I think that sounds really cool, but all we got is pit bulls. Are, are we not going to get in trouble? Are they going to? And I'm like, we're going to try this, Timmy. <laughs> we're going to try this, but I need to have processes and protocols and we need to train the handlers. Or It's Cleveland. We're taking them to dog-friendly bars and patios. You know, we got a ton of those in Cleveland. And it was amazing how fast that started to catch fire that people are like, when are the city dogs coming back to, you know, coming back, you know, you go to a bar for a Friday night event with five dogs and all five dogs get adopted. You know, it was like really mind you know, blowing to me that this kind of thinking might actually work in this industry. And so once I got the bug, then, then, then the cap was off and it's like, just go for it. I've said it on the podcast before. I have a tremendous amount of respect for everyone who does this work, regardless of role. But there's something about the work of field services that, I mean, straight up, Ed, I couldn't do it. And I start to wonder sometimes how the hell anyone does it. Uh, you know, both Garfield Heights and Cleveland, fair to say that the odds were stacked against you. You said you faced a lot of criticism. And in a profession that has the burnout rate that we do, how did you get through? How do you get through it now? I mean, how am I even sitting here talking to you when the odds that you'd stick around in animal welfare probably weren't great? Yeah, and, it, and it's rough. Again, I, I can remember specific animals that didn't make out of the shelter and just taking an absolute beating. You know, we made the best decision that we could at the time with what we had. And could I have done anything different and all of that? And, you know, knowing that you're trying your best, that gets you so far. But it still sucks when people are, are pounding on you. It does. Any, anybody who just that it doesn't wear on you, you're, you're either super strong or, you know, are just completely immune. It's not easy. I, you do try to think of the good things that are happening. And I do tell people we have, my, my motto is always win the day, but it used to start with win the hour. Let's just, if we can win more hours in a day, it's going to end up being a good day. Then we just started winning days. And I'm like, all right, now we got to win the day. You win more days than you lose. You're going to be pretty successful. I'm super big on programs. I'm super big on engagement that if you can get people involved and excited when people are helping your life-saving mission, not out of pity, but because they want to, and it's a cool place and they know that these animals are, are that you're, you're batting higher in the batting order than you should. Um, you're actually getting things done with very little. It's amazing how fast it starts to steamroll in a good way. So how fast bad things steamroll the good things can really start the steamroll also. And we started to develop this volunteer program, this structured volunteer program. And again, that those city dogs volunteers, as I think about it now, I mean, I'm grinning from ear to ear thinking about what we went through to get things started. Um, when, when Brianna Paulin asked about a running program, I, I was a marathon runner before I was the chief of Cleveland. You start running shelters, you just don't have five hours in a day to go on a 25-mile run. You just, you don't have five, but you don't get five hours of sleep. You sure as hell don't have five hours to run. But I'm like, that's pretty cool. There's a lot of safety things I'm worried about here, but this this could be cool because this kennel's a dungeon and we're doing play groups, but it's still just not enough. And it'd be great to run some dogs. In a matter of three weeks, we had more people wanting to run dogs than we had dogs that could be run. You know, it was crazy how fast cool programs will catch fire. And 
those are the things I think about when things are getting really, really heavy. It's just like, you know, we've done a bunch of cool stuff. If I, if I die today, there's already a stamp here that we've done a whole bunch of good. And I, sometimes that brings me back to, okay, if I was to die today, I know that we, we we've done pretty good up to this point and we've already have a, a trajectory that's still heading upwards, but it's a rough industry. There's, there's no, no ifs, ands or buts about it. And just think, you almost didn't even get the job. You said they extended the search. They extended it at least once, and I think twice. Maybe I'm so good, they're just trying to find somebody else. To, but what I have been told is each of my steps of the way, until this latest one, has been you're just going to a significantly bigger place. Sharon Harvey, my dear friend at the Cleveland APL, that she had said that. I saw what you're doing in Garfield Heights. I you know, saw your learning programs, your listening. We were part of the ASPCA's community thing. Um, you know, being involved with that, but you're going to be able to handle this because it's, it's just bigger. And when things are bigger, they're usually faster. The step from Garfield Heights to Cleveland was probably the biggest, even though Dallas is huge, because I took just, I already knew the programs when I went to Dallas. You know, I knew that I already had the equation down. It's just a matter of can I pull it off in this super big organization to pull it off. But yeah, Cleveland, it was, it was scary just because it was so, it seems so big to me now. Cleveland doesn't seem big to me now, but I was glad they took a chance on me. And again, I'm a pretty good animal control officer. So I knew that. I did know there was a better way to do animal control than just take it, take it, take it alone, that there was smart, that getting returned owner and field, that was a big thing for me. That getting those officers there, I'm like, you guys know our building sucks. Why do we want to bring a dog back there? It does suck. You don't even have to be all bunny loving to, to know that. Nothing should have to go inside that building if it doesn't have to. And so when we got over that hump to get them to start embracing things like that, we know the owner, there's things we can do. We can get them to buy their license through the iPads that I got each officer. There's ways. Um, And when they started finding ways to say yes instead of no, that's a pretty cool light bulb when you can see a guy who's been an animal control officer for 30 years, a really good animal control officer, but just stuck in the older way of doing it. It's pretty cool when you can get people to see a light bulb. That always makes me feel good when it's like, I didn't think that person was ever going to turn the corner. And when they do, that, that that's a pretty good feeling. So then to Dallas, Dallas Animal Services, that city's in the top 10 for biggest in the country by population. So yeah, sure. Like Sharon said, you know, it's just bigger. <laughs> but how did you end up taking a job in, in Dallas? Yeah, no, that one was just the post. I think I saw it on Facebook on some group. And again, wasn't really thinking about it, but I actually read that post. And if you've heard any of the DEI talks that I'm on, um, one of the barriers that this industry does, um, there's all kinds of stuff for people of color and things like that, but it's the education component. I don't have a college degree. So there's a lot simply because I don't have a degree I'm just not eligible for. In Dallas, I saw that that wasn't one of the requirements. It did take or um, equivalent work experience. So I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm still even eligible for this position. And then they just, they were doing so many cool things that I knew was a big city. I knew it was a hot mess there. I knew they had all kinds of problems, but the council had made a financial commitment. The council had made a commitment to support DAS as opposed to everything that's just be negative. I think they, they, they were sick of the drama. There's a lot of big city problems in Dallas, more than animals. And I think they were sick of spending a big portion of their time with just the animals being the number one issue that surveys they would send out every year. Animals was their biggest thing between animals being put down and people not feeling safe and couldn't walk to their mailbox without worrying about getting attacked by dogs. So, you know, the challenge seemed I was up for it. I had an equation for both of those on the animal control side and on the shelter side. 
Um, and then when you have a supportive council, I say, sure, I'll throw my name in that. And I didn't really know how far that would go, but it looked like this is a place if you're going to take a step, it's a pretty big step, but if they're going to support, then I'll throw my name in. And the way Dallas does interviews and again, how important equity is pretty quickly, I knew I had a shot. I said, you know what? I might actually fit for them. The city manager and the assistant city manager at the time who hired me, I, I could tell that I fit what they were looking for as far as leadership skills. I knew it was going to be harder in the sense that Cleveland was big, but I could still run out on any call. And you've been to Cleveland, so it's not that big. You can get anywhere in Cleveland in 20 minutes. You can't do that. You can't get anywhere in 20 minutes in Dallas. You can barely walk to the gas station next door in 20 minutes because it's just so congested. It's such a big, sprawling place that's congested all the time. I knew I wasn't going to be able to be running on every call. I knew I wasn't going to know all 700 animals that were in the shelter. That was a little bit scary, and I knew I was going to have to really have to depend on a team um, in that setting. Good team at Cleveland, but it was still small enough that push come to shove and that cage needs cleaned, I can go clean it. Push come to shove, that customer needs help, I could go do that adoption. I knew that wasn't going to be the case at Dallas, and I was going to have to have, have a team. Even people who had worked there forever in a bunch of horrible times, there were good people there that they didn't have a chance to shine. Um, just how the setup was, and they weren't a standalone department, so they were an afterthought department. A lot of the success at Dallas has to do with that team. I mean, I had a little little piece of of that, and I led that team, but it was those people there that were willing to do all that hard work that has been a big part of Dallas's success. I can't remember who says this analogy, but it's a good one, which is you know taking over a shelter director position in a community that is struggling, has challenges, it's like running into a burning building while everyone else is running away, right? So, I mean, what was it about Dallas that that compelled you to take? I mean, was it just the challenge? No, there's a little bit of, of the challenge. Again, we, Cleveland's map had been laid. It, the, the course was there. Um, and so I, I felt good that if this actually comes through, and as long as it's not some goofball who takes my place, that the team that's there knew knew what to do. The volunteers that were there in the community knew what needed to be done. I could see that there was a roadmap. Nobody had implemented it yet, though, in Dallas yet. You know, they, I started October 18th. October 1st was the fiscal year starting date that the, the department was a standalone department. So it was a funny thing um, in the interview process, the one of the times that they flew me out there for interview process, kind of a meet the candidates. And there were all kinds of interview sessions. And um, there were five of us that made the finals. And this Ryan Rogers guy was at the table next to me, sharp suit and tie. He was the guy who had been with the city for over a decade at that point. Young, though. So I think he started when he was like 13 or something like that. Young, young guy. But he was sharp, and I was listening to him um, getting grilled by people in this meet the meet the candidates thing. And he's giving good answers with numbers and processes and all of that. And they, they started asking about like animal specific things. And he's like, you know, I'm not really that informed on that yet, but I, I will be. I read like crazy. I I will. I remember that one for I I still know the person to this day. I won't say her name on here, but she goes. How many dogs are going to die while you figure it out, Mr. Rogers? I was like, oh, man, they, they are pounding him pretty hard. So we go through this process, and actually one of the other candidates was the major from the police department that had come in to take over, Major Hobbs. She, I love her. She's tough. Major Hobbs is a, is a tough cookie and helped put some of the foundations for some order at DAS. But she was one of the finalists as well. So when they called me to say that I was going to get it, 
Um, they said, and for your, I'd already asked for your org chart. And I'm like, all right, cool. I'm going to be able to pick an assistant director. They're like, we're going to, for six months, put this Ryan Rogers as the assistant director. I'm like, oh God, here we go. You're going to put the established city guy in there. And um, he, the guy who wanted my job. Um, so is he going to be undercutting me the whole time because he was applying for the director and it just couldn't be further from the truth for that. He started two weeks before me um, and just was really trying to set things up. Um, but that, that was like piece number one, that I had a really good right-hand person and he knew how to navigate the city and city hall and how to do council meetings and how you have to properly notify for public meetings and all. So that, that helped me a lot that I didn't get stuck in the nuances of just the process of the city of Dallas. And it allowed me to look at the quick hitter animal things that had to happen inside the building and outside the building, um, to not get bogged down on, on that front. I will say, and it, it's not a shameless plug, it's the reality, Brent Toner was one of the first people I had come visit me when I got to Dallas. The comment is, Brent, just put your eyes on this place. And if you spent three days, he was visiting some other shelters too, but he spent almost two and a half days at our shelter just walking around, looking. You know, Brent's the nicest guy. It's hard for anybody to get, like, intimidated by Brent because he's really nice. And But he, he can see processes. <laughs> You'll get a kick out of this. You know enough about the animal world. Dallas is big on proper notification on everything. So every one of our doors had like 18 8 by 11 pieces of paper with all these typed out instructions and all that. He's like, Ed, how many of these have you read? I was like, I, I haven't read it a, a single, not a single one of them. He's like, why the heck would you think that the public would read any of these things too? You know, uh, so like look, there was a bunch of little easy things like that. Get directionals around the building. Things that have to be posted properly. Make sure they're posted where people can actually read them and understand what they are. But it's just a big ecosystem there that I just knew you had to get each. If one of them wasn't functioning right, even the admin side, if the admin wasn't running right, you couldn't buy your cleaning supplies on time. Animals got sick, you know. So it was just looking for bottlenecks on where can you clear up any bottleneck. And that that's what an animal organization is. Things have to flow. From the time that you respond to a call to the time an animal comes in to when you're taking care of it to getting it out. That if it's if it's flowing good, you're going to move a bunch of animals. You're not going to have any problems. But if any one of those pieces slows down, you're going to find yourself making some really tough decisions. And um, my staff will laugh. They know I always say, and it's, it's an Army thing, there's enough landmines you can step on in this industry. We can't create our own landmines. We have to make sure when you're putting a landmine in front of yourself that you don't have to navigate around, that just slows you down too much. So we tried really hard to fix the things you can control and there's stuff you can't control. When you're dealing with humans and you're dealing with animals, there's a certain level of things that are just going to happen. But if you're not bogged down with a bunch of self-created issues, you have a better chance of dealing through those other issues, um, at least getting through them a lot smoother. And I'm telling you right now, I'm going to have to turn this into a two-part episode, I think, because I have a zillion other things to ask you. I want to talk about DEI. I obviously want to hear more about your new role uh, now in the nonprofit space at Operation Kindness there in Dallas, uh, you know, what your plans are for that organization. But talk to me about the success at Dallas. With the podcast, I think sometimes people listen to an episode like this and say, you know, good for Ed, nice guy, good job. That's Dallas and Cleveland and those places are not like where I live, uh, but you know, learning lessons from others is important. And so much, I think, of what we do 
is quite universal regardless of, of where you are. So tell me in Dallas for you, what were the keys to the success there? Um, it's actually, it's pretty easy on a, on a high level. And then it gets more complicated as you get down. You have to be honest with yourself and with what's going on in your organization. So Dallas, it was just so freaking big. Um, and luckily I had a numbers guy like Ryan to help put it in order. We looked at what calls are we responding to fast and what calls are we responding to slow? That's the same as whether you're in Garfield Heights or you're in Los Angeles, you know, that you, you need to respond in a timely manner to your calls and figure out. We realized that scheduling alone was causing an issue. We had too many officers on this day and it wasn't a high call volume day because it fit neat. It was a Wednesday and to split up your week, we had double the officers on Wednesday and simply by spreading out our officers, all of a sudden, wow, response time started to go down and the shelter and this is a tough one, and people don't like to talk about it, and you know me well enough, John. I wanted to know what was dying. And you can't figure out why things are dying until you know what is dying. And things weren't being reported as precisely as they needed to be to understand. And if you just say X number of dogs are dying and X number of cats, okay, that's a start. But, like, we looked and we saw that almost 2,000 neonates were dying pretty much on intake. But it allowed us to develop a plan for neonates. We saw that heart positive dogs were 35% more likely to die because we didn't have resources to treat heartworm. And it's Texas. Everything has heartworm down here. Um, so we were able to develop a plan for heartworm. Does that make sense that when you're looking at what is dying at a granular level, and then it allows you to develop plans for what is, and whether that's you have to ask externally, that's a, advice to people. Funders want to help, but they don't want to just help for just cute and fuzzy anymore. It has to be strategic. And if you say, I can save 80 of this type of animal if I have X, Y, or Z, you've got a much better chance of them saying yes, because they're going to know what the impact is. So we just broke everything down at Dallas, at, again, from response time to which of our vendors weren't getting paid on time to which of our everything we broke down and, and made sure we were recording the information so we could pull it back out. And it's amazing how clear the roadmap starts to look. And I'll be the first to raise my hand. When I guess on what's happening, I'm wrong more often than not. But when I actually look at the data behind it, it's it's amazing how crystal clear it becomes. And you don't even, again, you might not have the resource. It might be a plan for next year or the year after when you go to council or your board for a budget. But when you have a plan, it's amazing how willing people are to help because they know they're not just throwing their money at nothing. They're throwing at something you've given the map and that if I have this, I've already proven I can fix it. It's almost easy to me at this point, if you can get it there. It's hard to understand that. But once you get to that point, it becomes really, really easy. Because it's simple. We, we can't save this because of that. And not just, I just need more people. More people for what? What are they going to do? How many animals can you process in if you have two more attacks? How many adoptions can you get if you have three more counselors? And when you can break it down and you understand that each counselor gives you this, and that's why city council has been really good at Dallas. We always have to submit reductions. And it's fine. We submit them and we'll tell you an officer responds to X number of calls. There's this many fix it tickets that are written by officer every day. And I got a lot of stuff in three and a half years because the data, it was crystal clear and we knew that we could manage it. If you give it to us, we'll get the result that we said we would get. Again, it, it's pretty easy if you can break it down. Um, and everybody in the industry will say, I don't have time to break it down. And I get it. I understand that. It's well worth the time to somehow find a way to start breaking things down. Stop fixing what you think is broken as opposed to really seeing what's broken. And that is part one of this two-part episode with our guest, Ed Jamison. 
Last month, he took on a new role as the CEO of Operation Kindness, an already fantastic organization in Dallas. He talks about what's ahead for them. We talked about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and what we can do to support rural communities. That's all coming in part two. The producers of this program, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.